Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. This is Marty Oakley of the PPJ Gazette Online, and this is the DS Radio Network. That was obviously the voice of Marty Oakley, who passed on April the 1st. This program, among others, is her legacy that she set up a forum for people to tell the truth and to warn others of dangers. It is said that when a person dies, a library burns to the ground, and so it is with the loss of Marty, who is a warrior and an advocate for the elderly and the vulnerable. Rest in peace, Marty. Good evening. I'm Marcia Joyner, and this is Betrayed by Hospice, where we talk about advocating for the elderly and disabled and provide information on how you can protect yourself and your loved ones. Our goal is to give you food for thought and resources to do your own research so you don't become a victim. This program is sponsored by National Association to Stop Guardian Abuse and Australian Association to Stop Guardianship and Administration Abuse. Archbishop Fulton Sheen said it best, the refusal to take sides on great moral issues is in itself a decision. It is a silent acquiescence to evil. Yesterday marked the sixth anniversary of my mom's murder by hospice. And I won't go into that tonight, but it was a very somber day for me yesterday. And what is going on with hospice is not acceptable. Towards the end of the program, if you want to make a comment or ask a question, select one on your phone and you'll be put into a queue. If you're listening via the Internet and you wish to speak, dial 917-388-2450 and select 1. And tonight's show may be quite depressing for some, but it is information that all of us need to be aware of. And tonight's program reminded me of two movies that caused me angst. The first was in 1969 with Night Gallery titled Eyes, with Joan Crawford and Tom Bosley. Joan plays a rich, heartless woman who was born blind and blackmails an aspiring surgeon to perform surgery that would give her vision for 12 hours. She pays Bosley, a desperate man, $9,000 for his optic nerves to pay for his gambling debts. As luck, or maybe poetic justice would have it, New York City has a total blackout one minute after she removes the bandages and can see and then everything is dark again until the sun comes up the next morning, but so does the 12 hours, and she is once again blind. We often hear, if you have enough money, you can buy anything, but does it mean it's right? Tonight we'll talk more about what money can buy. The second movie that it made me think about was Seven Pounds, and that came out in 2008 with Will Smith. He had caused an accident that killed seven people and felt guilty, so decided that he wanted to find seven people worthy of his tissues and organs to make up for it. He gives a lung lobe to his brother, part of his liver to Holly, a kidney to a hockey coach, bone marrow to a young boy, and decides to give a blind man his eyes after his death and his heart slated to go to Emily. He ultimately falls in love with Emily, causing him to want to live, but she'll die without his heart. So he commits suicide in a bathtub filled with ice to supposedly keep his heart and eyes healthy for transplant. 
after his death, all of the people that he donated to are told why. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because tonight you will hear about various types of donations and how some are voluntary and do not kill a patient, while others do. Just food for thought about what you may or may not want to do. And many people have made the gracious decision to donate their organs when they die so that somebody else will benefit. And that's an amazing gift. And probably all they thought about it was, I click yes on my driver's license. I want to be an organ donor. And I've seen news with people standing outside a hospital with candles that say, wait to hear that a person died and donated the organs to others while the other person is literally in another room waiting. Others have a ceremony honor walk in the hospital hallways with the body of the donor being wheeled to the operating room down the hall to remove their life support and harvest their organs, and their family walks behind the gurney. Obviously, they're not dead yet. So what does constitute death? And if they are dead, they won't feel or know anything, right? a bittersweet moment with life and death bound together, hanging in the balance. However, when you hear the facts about organ donation or harvesting, you may feel more sadness and horror than joy. I don't make any judgment on anyone who wishes to donate a part of their body or receive a donation, as long as you know the facts. There are many questions that we should ask, and tonight I hope my guest will answer many of them for us, And as you know, there are always big bucks involved, and we'll talk about that. I am honored to introduce my guest tonight, Dr. Heidi Klesig, who is a retired anesthesiologist and pain management specialist. She attended medical school at UV Madison, where she completed a residency program in anesthesiology and received American Board of Anesthesiology Certificate of Added Qualification in Pain Management. She was a founding partner of the Pain Clinic of Northwestern Wisconsin and was an instructor for the International Spinal Injection Society. She is co-author on the book, Harvesting Organs and Cherishing Life. She writes many articles discussing brain death and organ harvesting for Heartland Daily News, Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, and American Thinker, just to name a few. She is also frequently called upon for many organizations to speak, the most recent this year with Halo Voice, Faith and Medicine in Georgia, Heartland Institute, America Out Loud Pulse, and Association of America Physicians and Surgeons, with the most recent seminar on the dark side of organ harvesting, the good, the bad, and the ugly, which she will focus on tonight. She has two websites, respectforhumanlife.com and heartlanddailynews.com. And after her husband, Daryl, was diagnosed with a brainstem tumor, she retired in 2007 to devote time to her family, homeschooling her two children, and caring for her husband, and now her mom, who has dementia. She enjoys outdoors, study of language, history, and the Bible, and an aspiring pianist. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Heidi Klesig. And Heidi, thank you so much for joining us. 
and sharing your expertise. I'd like for you to start with telling our listeners how you became involved in researching harvesting organs from being an anesthesiologist, if you wouldn't mind. Oh, thank you so much, Marcia. And and before we start, please let me express my sincere condolences on the anniversary of your mom's death. I didn't know that. So I'm very thank you. very mournful with you in, in that memory. But I'm so I'm so encouraged by what you've done with with that pain and how you've made it into something to help people. And and I you know, I that's why I'm doing what I'm doing as well. That you know, some some of the things that I've experienced in my life have been painful but what are we to do with those i mean those things can be worked out for the good also and so as i go through and talk about the the good the bad and the ugly the ethical and the unethical as far as organ uh, donation that's why it's it's to it's to do something positive and good in the world as you have been doing as well so thank you for this opportunity thank you so I'm going to go on um, just to see how how did a nice girl like me end up writing books and, and talking about such a crazy subject. Uh, when I was a, a young woman, I, I went to medical school at, at Madison, Wisconsin, and then I entered an anesthesiology uh, residency training program there. And, you know, I was being trained to be a modern physician. There was a lot of study. There was a lot of mentorship. There was a lot of just learning how how is medicine practiced, you know, in, in that time and in that day and age. And I was very interested one night when I came in for night call uh, to meet my uh, supervising physician, and he said, oh, Heidi, I'm, I'm glad you're here. Uh, tonight, uh, we're going to do a, an organ harvest, so if, would you go up to uh, ICU and uh, do a preoperative evaluation on, on that young man who's going to be an organ donor? Well, this kind of surprised me. I mean, I'd, I'd learned a lot about taking care of living patients and, and providing anesthesia for living patients, but I'd never been asked to perform an anesthetic for an organ donor. And it, it surprised me, and you know, honestly, I, I didn't want to look stupid, so I, I said, you know, gosh, an organ donor, you know, is there anything I, I should know, anything different about this? And he kind of chuckled. He said, well, you know how eager the transplant team can be. Just be sure someone's actually declared him brain dead. Huh, I thought to myself, that's, that's not what I expected you to say. So up I went to the ICU, and, and I, I found the chart, and I reviewed the case, and it was a young man about, about my age at the time who had been in a motorcycle accident and had sustained a, a very severe head injury. And he had been seen by the neurologist and had been declared brain dead. So I went in to see him, and one of the things that I have to uh, tell you is I was very relieved there was nobody in the room with him. I, I wasn't quite sure what I would have said if there was a parent or a sibling or a family member there. I mean, usually when we give an anesthetic, we try to calm and reassure the family that, that we're going to do a good job taking care of their loved one and, and that everything is going to go fine. But, you know, how could I honestly say that in this case when, when the young man was not going to be coming back? So I went to the bedside and I took a look at him. Um, he was warm. He had good skin color. He had uh, various drips. Uh, he was on a monitor. His heart was beating. He had good blood pressure. He uh, had a reasonable heart rate. He was on a ventilator, of course, but his um, blood was well oxygenated. I mean, he looked exactly like all the other ICU patients 
um, that I had taken to the operating room for various procedures. He really didn't look dead at all. So I went and I, I confirmed some of the tests for brain death, and, and he didn't respond in, in ways that brain dead people don't respond. So I went and filled out my pre-op anesthesia form and took it back to the operating room where I met a, a different uh, attending anesthesiologist who was going to supervise me for the actual case. And he said, okay, so what's your care plan? So I said, well, uh, I guess what I'll do is I'll bring him down to the operating room and I'll, I'll give a paralyzing agent so he doesn't move during the surgery and, you know, interrupt the surgeons. And I'll give some narcotic, a potent narcotic, uh, to blunt any pain response so his heart rate doesn't, you know, go too high. It wouldn't be good for the organ. And I guess that's about it. And my supervisor said, well, you know, probably you should give him something to blunt consciousness as well. And that surprised me. And, and I, I remember looking at him and saying, but wait, is, isn't he dead? And my supervising doctor said to me, well, just in case. And he walked away. So wow. this was, this was a, my mind was reeling. So I went and brought the young man down to the operating room, and he was on a monitor. You know, his heart was beating, transferred him to the operating room table just like everybody else. Uh, he got prepped and draped for surgery just like everyone else. Uh, when incision was made, his heart rate and blood pressure went up just like everybody else. And so he was given the combination of a, so, uh, a potent narcotic to blunt that pain response. I did give some um, consciousness blocking drug right up front, just out of, you know, mercy, I guess. And also we always, in that type of surgery, give a, a paralyzing drug to prevent movement that would interfere with the surgeon. Well, you know, as time went on and the bone saw was brought up to open up the sternum, uh, his blood pressure went up and I gave more narcotic. Uh, but at one point, narcotic wasn't enough to bring his blood pressure down. And I remembered, oh, yeah, I should probably give some more of that consciousness-blocking drug. And, you know, the blood pressure went down, which I found very remarkable. I, I remember exactly. feeling as though this was so wrong. I just had a sense of wrongness, and it, it was it was very confusing to me at the time. And, and I remember kind of, you know, trying to fill out my record and, and monitor the blood pressure and take take this all in, when the surgeon said, okay, you know, we're done with you, you can uh, disconnect the ventilator and go. And that's, I mean, this is my first time, right? I, I, I was surprised by that. I guess I shouldn't have been if I had nearly thought about it for a while. But they were no longer going to need me to provide any type of breathing or blood pressure support or anesthesia because the organs were, were going to be removed. So, even though it felt wrong, I, I did what the surgeon asked of me. I disconnected the ventilator and I walked away. And, you know, I went on to have a, a busy night doing other patients' uh, anesthetics that night. And I went home and slept the next day and came right back in uh, the day after and away we go. And honestly, it felt wrong. It seemed wrong. But I didn't really take the time to think about it very much. I'm, I'm sort of ashamed to say, I mean, I, when you're going through medical training, we do a lot of things that, gosh, this feels really odd and wrong at the time, but it's things that are necessary to be done to take care of patients. We learn to take bone marrow biopsies. We learn to stick tubes and pins and needles in people in ways that you, you know, you don't really think of yourself 
ending up doing, but it's for a good cause. So you, you learn to kind of take it in stride and, and learn to be the type of doctor that they're making you to be. And, and, you know, the sad thing as I look back is that instead of thinking for myself, I believed my authorities and I didn't question what I had been told, even though the evidence of my eyes seemed to suggest something else. So I graduated from my anesthesia training program and I got a job in private practice and after uh, practicing anesthesia in the community for a year, I kind of missed talking to my patients is what I noticed. And, and I decided that it might be more fun to enter a subspecialty of anesthesiology, which is pain management practice. And it, that's a clinic-based practice where people come in and you talk to them about their problems and you try to find ways to relieve their pain. So you know, honestly, I, I really don't think I ever took care of another organ donor other than that one time early in my training, though, you know, I, during training, I did take care of very, very many organ recipients because uh, my hospital was a very busy transplant program and transplant recipients are often uh, very sick and, and are very difficult anesthetics. And as well, we get up in our progression of our training, we, we got to do more difficult cases like that. But in private practice, I went very quickly from one year in the operating room into a pain management type practice, and so it really never came up. Well, then in uh, 2006, my husband was diagnosed with a brainstem tumor. It came about very suddenly. Um, thankfully, uh, he, though at the time, uh, no one knew if he would live you know, another day, another hour, another month, he has ultimately done very well, but at, at the time it was a big deal. I mean, we, he was carted right off to a Mayo Clinic in Rochester, and and he was put on the surgery schedule every morning for three days running, but then the surgeons would come and examine him, and he was neurologically intact. He didn't really have any symptoms, and the symptom that caused him to get the MRI was vertigo, which turned out just to be from a, an ear infection. And so basically, they had an asymptomatic man with a brain stem tumor the size of my thumb uh, that they'd never seen anyone that had such a large tumor but was not in any way limited by it. So they said, you know, we don't really don't know what to tell you. You should probably just go home and, and do the best you can, and, and we'll just keep you in follow-up. My husband came home, and his uh, his family doctor um, he had had a he had actually turned fifty that year, and so he had had a previously scheduled appointment with his family doctor to go in and you know do the usual I'm fifty years old test and you know get the colonoscopy scheduled and all that. And his family doctor saw him and said, "What are you doing here?" And my husband said, "Well, I'm I'm here for my fifty year you know run of the mill physical exam, and should I have a colonoscopy?" And his doctor said, "You don't need any of that. Go home." I mean, just that blunt wow. man walked out of the room. I mean, everyone uh -huh. expected that he was not going to live. And so we took it very seriously. And so we had young children at the time. And so we made our plan. And I um, sold out my, my partnership. And we sold our big doctor house. And we moved uh, to someplace a bit more modest and took uh, my buyout money. We bought rental property and took care of our kids and everything. Every year for the next several years, Daryl went down to Mayo and got a, another MRI and another neuro exam, but he was doing great. It was okay. So, 
He was okay. So praise the Lord. I mean, we've had a, a wonderful time drawing closer as a family. I, I say that every wife should understand that her husband has an expiration date, right? That we should stop and smell the roses a little bit. So it actually, again, it right. has blessed us in un, un, unusually, unusual and unexpected ways. But anyway, so here we are. We're, we're just taking care of our family. And about 2012, a bunch of magazine and newspaper and articles and books came out talking about how brain death was a legal fiction. Well, I was sort of interested in that, you know, because I had come from that world. And so I bought uh, one of the books. It was written by author Dick Teresi, and it was called The Undead. And in the book, he talked about how brain death was not at all the same as biological death. And I just remember having this horrible feeling in the pit of my stomach saying, Dear Lord, what have I done? And it came back so vividly, remembering how I had taken that young man, and uh, in, in retrospect, a young man who deserved my protection, and I took him to the operating room and held him down with a paralyzing drug and, and let doctors kill him by organ harvesting, basically. And so I had to uh, fall on my knees in, in repentance and ask God to forgive me. And, and it's just... I. The reason I do this and the reason I go through all that long, interesting story, is that I don't want anyone else to have to feel the way I felt. I just, I don't want anyone to have to feel like, wow, what have I done? What kind of a mistake did I make? And I've talked to people who are in that situation, people who, in you know, using the best information they had at the time, gave a spouse, gave a beloved brother, to be harvested because all they ever heard was one side of the story. Give the gift of life. Be a, be a noble, altruistic person. They, they never had been told the other side or had, you know, had time to really think about it. So exactly. As I go through the, the types of, of organ and tissue harvesting and donation, I don't want anybody to get the idea that I am against organ transplant, tissue transplant, not at all. Um, there are certain types that are wonderful that I can endorse wholeheartedly that I would participate in myself. Uh, and so as I, as I go through these, the way I look at it is, would I receive this type of transplant? Is this something that I would feel comfortable in my heart and soul uh, doing for myself? And, and as you, you, know, you and your listeners uh, follow through with me, I guess that's the question I'd like you to ask just you know, individually for each one of you. you know, is this a kind of transplant that I would like to do, right? Well, I'll move on then you know, with what I call the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, I'm going to divide up uh, the good, and we'll start with the good news first, right? We'll start with uh, tissue donation and living organ donation. So tissues are not puffs and Kleenex when we start talking about medical things. Doctors call tissues very simple structures, uh, things like a cornea from your eyes, your skin, your bones, even the valves of your heart. Uh, these tissues, unlike organs, are very resilient to a lack of blood flow, and they can be harvested from a biologically dead donor. And so, you know, the answer to my question, would I receive a tissue donation? Well, absolutely I would. These 
tissues can be harvested from people whose spirit has departed. They're biologically dead. There's no ethical concern uh, as far as the tissue donation itself for me. However, I was surprised when uh, my amazing co-author, Chris Bogosh, and I were researching our book, Harvesting Organs and Cherishing Life, we found an article in the Los Angeles Times from 2019, and it's called, In the Rush to Harvest Body Parts, Death Investigations Have Been Upended. And you can link to that on our website if you want to read it. The reporter, Melody Peterson, found over two dozen cases in which organ procurement organizations were allowed to harvest tissues, that's again, cornea, skin, bone, heart valve, from registered organ donors before the pathologist or coroner was able to determine the cause of death. Now, some of these families begged the organ procurement team not to harvest until the questions surrounding their loved one's deaths were all answered, but they were refused because their loved ones had signed a donor card. And so these families were left without closure or in some cases even justice when the, when the death was supposed to be possibly the result of a crime. Mm-hmm. So um, in our, on our website, you can see some of these and in our book. I mean, one was John Flath. He was a young, healthy man. He was an ROTC and he was you know, working out and he just fell down and, and died. And he had signed a donor card. He was his mother said, "Please don't harvest his organs till we know why he died." But she was refused. And after the organ procurement team took his heart valves, the pathologist could no longer look at his heart and decide why he had fallen over and apparently died of a heart attack because the heart itself had been so destroyed by the by the harvesting uh, procedure. So this is a problem, um, right? Why, why, as you brought up earlier, you know, why, why would an organ procurement organization be in such a hurry to harvest? I mean, why would they refuse to honor the request of the family not to harvest until a death determination could be made? Well, the LA Times suggests that this uh, human body that you and I give away for free is worth a good deal of money. And they have a, a graphic in, in their article that shows what these tissues are worth. And, you know, I can give you a couple examples. If you um, donate your body and they take out a piece of skin about the size of a piece of typing paper, uh, the charge for that is $16,500. Uh, many people have to have spinal fusion surgery, and for uh, one teaspoon of ground bone mixed with stem cells, um, they charge $2,550 for a single teaspoon. So this is, you know, big business. You know, of course, these are only processing fees, right? You know, their only country in the world where it is legal to sell body parts is Iran. And so these are all just, you know, processing fees from the organ procurement organization. Now, if you start talking about organs, the charges, of course, uh, go right up. I mean, I have some numbers, and I don't know if you have um, this graphic to show, but I have it on our website. Um, the Milliman Group is an actuarial group, and they've done a, a nice table for us. Uh, they have things like a, a heart transplant. Uh, the bill charges for that are uh, $1,664. Uh, for a liver transplant, $878,400. A piece of intestine is a million two. A kidney is four hundred and forty thousand dollars. 
a single lung transplant is just under a million dollars. A double lung is about a million three. A pancreas, about 400,000. So as you can see, if you add up all the tissues and the organs, the body you give away for free can be worth well over $5 million. And the Milliman yeah, Company. Crazy. It's a lot. The Milliman Company calculated that for the year 2020, uh, that U.S. transplants would generate over 48 billion in total bill charges. So it's it's big business, and I don't mean to imply that every single person involved in transplant is just in it for the money. No, not at all. But overarching all of this, uh, there is a lot of dollars and cents being being exchanged. So because or let me mm-hmm. let me just stop right there. If if anybody the listeners, if you're looking online, if you go to the same link that you're listening to and you look at this online, I have a couple of the slides that Dr. Klesig just told us about that list the body parts and how much they are. So if you're on that link, you can see that. Go, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. So because, you know, whereas earlier I said, you know, tissue donation, I mean, taking tissue from a biologically dead body is, is an ethical thing to do. But because the organ procurement organizations are permitted to harvest tissues from registered organ donors, people who have registered now, before an official coroner's report, I have to recommend that no one be a registered organ or tissue donor. Now, the good news is I you agree, don't have 100%. to be registered. Yeah, you don't have to be registered. If you really do want to donate your tissues, uh, just tell your family that they can release your corpse for tissue donation once all their questions regarding your death have been answered. <coughs> Excuse me. So don't sign a donor card. If you have signed one, you can go and have your permission removed at the Department of Motor Vehicles. It's about, in our state, it cost a, a friend of mine about $14 to have that done. But unfortunately, that may not be enough um, The Uniform Anatomical Gift Act was updated in 2006, and it now mandates that individuals who refuse to donate must explicitly state their refusal. And here's the the language from the, the new law. It says, this is if you would be brought to a hospital and you are incapacitated and can't speak for yourself, right? It says, if family is not reasonably available and there is no documented evidence of the decedent's choice not to donate, the administrator of the hospital shall make an anatomical gift of the decedent's body or part. So if you are incapacitated and your family cannot be located, this act puts the decision about whether to harvest your organs and tissues in the hands of people you know, whose interests might be more aligned with their own agenda than with your wishes. So on exactly. our website, and that- we have... Mm-hmm. That is somebody, even if they are considered brain dead and they can't get a hold of the family, is that right? That's any. You know, that's anybody. Even if you're, you know, you're all dead and you, ha- you know, are you going to be a tissue donor? I mean, that could be anybody. Right. But that's okay. for the case. So it's important to register your refusal so that you know you you get to be the one to make these choices and not a hospital administrator. So that um, Halo Voice 
is has been such a, a, a wonderful sister organization for us. Uh, Halo Voice is healthcare advocacy and leadership organization, and on their website they have a, a wonderful "I refuse to be an organ donor" card that you can uh, download. They also have physical cards that, that I think for a small donation they'll mail to you. Uh, Life Guardian Foundation, Dr. Paul Burns' website also has a downloadable medical card to help protect and preserve your life. So these are things that would be wise to, you know, to carry with you. Uh, we're fortunate. But it was your driver's license. Just, it, and it's made to fold right around your driver's license so no one can miss it. Um, in our state of Wisconsin, we do have on our driver's license uh, a yes or a no. I am an organ donor, yes or no. So if you live in a state like Wisconsin, please check the no but most states don't have that, so you really need to have a refusal card on your person. Also, it would be very wise to have your wishes documented in your electronic medical record. You know, when you're in an accident, who knows where your wallet ends up, but your electronic medical record should follow you just about everywhere. So I'm going to move on. Uh, moving on from tissue donation, I'm going to talk about living donation. Now, living donation is the happy story of organ donation and transplant because everybody gets to remain alive after the procedure, right? So just about anything except a heart can come from a living donor. You can donate blood, bone marrow, skin, stem cells. You can give one of a pair of organs. Uh, the kidney, of course, we have two kidneys, and it's the most common living donation of an organ. You can give a section of your intestine or your pancreas. You can give part of a lobed organ, such as the liver or in uh, the case of a lung. So for a living lung transplant, you know, interestingly, we have uh, five lung lobes, interestingly enough, and the, to do this, the recipient gets one lobe from each of two donors. So the, the two donors don't have to give an entire lung, they just give a lobe, and the recipient gets a lobe from each of two people. Um, family members often donate to a relative because of genetic similarity. We have a good friend who donated a kidney to her daughter who's been able to live over 20 more years because of that. But unrelated people can also become living donors. I, I, a nurse I worked with received a kidney from a total stranger just out of you know total goodness of her heart. Um, living donations, you know, in addition to being a wonderful example of selfless service, these donations generally are more long-lasting and successful because the organ can be removed in one operating room and immediately taken to a waiting recipient in the operating room next door with a very short time without a blood flow. So again, I'm telling you, I would certainly consider this type of thing. I mean, this is totally ethical and and it's a it's a valorous thing to do so I'm, I'm not again against all types of organ harvesting and transplant the living would be one a wonderful thing to do so I'm going to move on now we've talked about the good so now we're going to move on you know to the bad now there's a couple that I think everyone would agree are bad types of, of organ harvesting and transplant and the first one is uh, called forced organ harvesting and this is the execution of a prisoner by the harvesting of his or her organs. And it is happening right now in communist China. Uh, political dissidents and religious minorities there uh, are being forced to undergo blood and tissue typing when they get arrested. Uh, the 
religious uh, group called the Falun Gong, which is a, a religion of meditation and peace, have been victimized uh, by the China, Chinese government since the 1970s as organ donors. But more recently, the, the Uyghur Muslim population has also uh, come under attack with this, as well as house church Christians. Uh, these people's organs, once they know what the blood and tissue typing looks like, are then put on the market for transplant tourists who come to China from all over the world to have their transplant surgery on the day that the prisoner is executed by the removal of their organs. Um, I heard sick. a doctor. Mm-hmm, it, well, it's really sad is what it is. It's, it's, it's victimizing people. Yeah. Um, there, there are some excellent groups that, uh, that are working against this practice. Uh, one is uh, Doctors Against Forced Organ Harvesting. You can find their website online, as well as uh, the International Coalition to End Transplant Abuse in China. I heard a, a doctor from Doctors Against Forced Organ Harvesting talk about how um, the country of Israel banned this practice. Unfortunately, the United States still permits insurance companies to pay for Chinese organs, so the practice is banned in other countries, such as Israel and, and Spain and Italy, uh, Taiwan, Norway, and Belgium. A doctor in Israel had a patient come and say, hey, you know, doc, I need a pre-op physical. I'm going to China, and I'm going to have a, an organ transplant on such and such a date. And the doctor says, well, wait a minute, how can, how can you schedule a transplant? How do you know that someone with you know, your exact type of tissue and, and genetic needs is, are, is going to be available? Well, in China they do know because those people are prisoners and, and they, that prisoner will be executed when those people come to get their organ. Do you think so, they know that? More do you and more, think the you do? Well, it, I think more and more people do. I think back in the 70s, it was less well-known. There's a a video that you can find the link to on our website. Um, It's a documentary film directed by Leon Lee. It's called Human Harvest, and it documents um, this practice in communist China. And they interview um, several people. Uh, These were all Taiwanese people. And apparently at the time, the people in Taiwan were not aware that they were coming to China to get an organ that was going to be from a, a, a prisoner. And, and honestly, it's a tough documentary to watch, just you know, straight up. But some of the toughest scenes for me were just watching the sorrow and pain and the regret of these people who had received an organ in China and only found out later that it was from an executed prisoner. Wow, um, yeah. And, some, and that goes to money can buy anything. You know, what I was talking about earlier about the movie is if you have enough money, you can buy a body part and this person dies to give you life, but that does not make it right. Yeah. yeah. And and there's even a controversy. Um, um, there are doctors in the United States that actually will refuse to provide follow-up care for people who received an organ from forced organ harvesting in China. Other doctors say, you know, these people still need care and, and will care for them. It is, it's an ethical issue, and it's a tough one. And, and there, you know, there has been, thankfully, a lot of work to stop it. And, in fact, the United States proposed last year that the United Nations investigate the situation of the Uyghur Muslims in China. But, unfortunately, 
China was able to pressure the majority of nations in the UN to vote this down, including getting Brazil and India to abstain. But people are working on, on getting it stopped. And, you know, but again, when there's there's a, a market, there, people will use it, I right. suppose. Uh, right. So you sort of also brought up with the movie the organ trafficking, right, to buy somebody's organ. And this uh, this is also going on. Uh, we have some articles on our website. And one of the most heartbreaking for me is called I've Already Sold My Daughters, Now My Kidney. This is winter in Afghanistan slums. Um, organ trafficking is the exploitation of a poor person who and who's offered just a paltry sum to donate an organ to a wealthy recipient. Uh, the World Health Organization estimated in 2009 that one-fifth of the kidney transplants worldwide that year came from organ trafficking, 20%. Um, organ removal involves major surgery, and complications can and do occur, and, and these poor donors may be left without the resources to face these complications alone because I'm sure the person who paid for their organ is long gone. Exactly. And so now they're not even going to have health care to administer when they need it after giving an organ because it's even giving, a, I would assume, even giving a partial or giving a kidney, you know, you still have recovery time that you're going to have to go through. It's not a picnic. Oh, yeah. The, the lady I mentioned earlier who donated a kidney to her daughter, she had a major complication, and she had to be rehospitalized and had a lot of health care and medical care to fix the complication, which these poor traffic donors do not receive. And, you know, if, right. and lest you think that this doesn't happen in industrialized countries, um, just in March of this year, a Nigerian senator and his wife were convicted of conspiring to exploit a man for his kidney. They brought a, a street vendor from Nigeria to England to uh, pretend that he was a cousin or something to donate a kidney to her, their daughter who was going to school in England at the time. But after being brought to England, the victim refused the procedure, escaped, pretty much escaped from their custody and contacted police. So the, he was, uh, the senator and his wife, as well as the doctor who set all this up, were just recently uh, convicted. Uh, they called it in the newspaper article, the first conviction under modern slavery laws in England. The senator got nine years, his wife four years, and, and the doctor who uh, coordinated it ten years in prison for this. So it happens even in industrialized countries. So I'm going to yeah, move right. on. Now that was the, the ugly. We're going to talk a bit about brain death now. Now maybe some of your listeners remember the tragic death of Anne Hesch last, uh, last summer. Um, I think her death sort of showcases some of the controversies about so-called brain death. So Anne Hesch's, if you remember, her Mini Cooper ran off the road and collided with a house on August 5th of last year. And and you may have seen there was an overhead video camera footage of her being taken and put in the in the ambulance. And, and she was conscious and communicating at that time with first responders. She looked a little combative and disoriented. She was trying to sit up on the gurney, but she was she was moving. Uh, the day after the accident, her spokesperson said she was stable, but by uh, August 8th, three days later, she was described as being in a coma. And on August 11th, uh, she was said to not to be expected to survive, and in fact, doctors did declare her brain dead later that day on August 11th. But because Anne Hash was a registered organ donor, she was kept on life support until her organ harvesting on August 14th, three days later. 
So because brain death equals legal death in California, the Los Angeles Times reported her death with the morning paper on August 12th. But the New York Times and the Washington Post held their obituaries until her death by organ harvesting on August 14th. Uh, The Washington Post obituaries editor Adam Bernstein said, uh, this is his quote, "Uh, it's black and white, there's no gray area here. If you're on life support, you're still alive. Other publications can make their own judgment about when they're comfortable publishing. I'm comfortable when someone is actually dead. So this brings up the question, when is someone actually dead, right? So in biological terms, you know, if you remember your high school biology, death is described in your biology book as the loss of the integrative functioning of the organism as a whole. Now, that's a lot of fancy language to just say we're more than the sum of our parts. I mean, we have all these systems of our body, our our breathing, our heart rate. You know, we we keep our temperature at, you know, 98.6. We excrete, we break down food. Um, and when we're alive, all this works in, in seamless unity. But when we die, this intricate harmony stops. I mean, our heartbeat and our breathing stop. Our body becomes cold. And the bacteria in our intestines there begins to grow in an uncontrolled way, causing putrefaction. And our body returns to the dust, right? Um, the three Abrahamic faith traditions, which would be Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all define death as equivalent with biological death. And traditionally, the departure of, of our spirit, of the intangible part of our nature, is what causes the loss of the bodily integration. And so for thousands of years, I mean, doctors and, and everybody else, right? I mean, in most of our history, it didn't take a doctor to diagnose that you were dead. It was the absence of that biologic. When you got cold, dead, gray, and stiff, people recognized that you were dead. Right. And um, people were, in fact, you know, very concerned not to pronounce death too quickly. I mean, you've probably seen pictory where people actually made coffins with a little string that could ring a bell, right? In case you had been buried right. too quickly, you could ring the bell and be dug up. I mean, even here just last, this last couple of weeks, did you see the newspaper article about the woman in Ecuador who was pronounced dead and then started banging on her coffin during her wake? Oh, I did not. <laughs> woman. Yeah, this was in Ecuador. I think it was just in the last week or two. So, you know, her her family and and friends who were assembled for her wake rapidly got her out of the coffin and took her back wow. to the hospital. She um she I think she did uh, eventually expire. She she didn't stay alive much longer, but you know, we, no one no one likes the idea of having death pronounced too quickly. I mean, even throughout history. I mean, you read old Edgar Allan Poe stories, you know, the fall of the House of Usher. This is this has been a concern for people. Right, but, right. you know, that that definition of death that had been one of biological death, when your heart and breathing stop, you get cold, gray, and stiff, that definition was changed in 1968. Now, now what was going on that doctors decided to change the definition of death? Um, well, the first successful heart transplant took place in January of 1968. Now, there had been a couple previous heart transplant attempts in December of 1967, and if you look at the at the record books, that's where they say the first heart transplants occurred. But because doctors were concerned that you know they be they might be charged with death if they took someone's beating heart out, they might be charged with murder. 
uh, but actually they stopped the hearts of those two donors uh, before transplanting those two first hearts in December of 1967. And the transplants were not very successful. The, the one recipient lived only a few hours and the other only a few weeks. But in South Africa on New Year's Day in 1968, a black man named Clive Hout suffered a brain bleed while he was picnicking with his family and was rushed to the hospital. Uh, his attending physician was Dr. Hoffenberg, and that very same day that the patient was admitted, he was approached by the transplant team who asked him to declare Mr. Help dead. Well, initially, Dr. Hoffenberg balked. I mean, this man has you know, got a heartbeat. He's, he's breathing. Well, you know, I can't declare him dead. And reportedly, one of the transplant surgeons said, God, Bill, what kind of heart are you going to give us? I mean, meaning if they waited for Mr. Help's heart to stop, it would begin to break down and, and become unsuitable for transplant. So I think Dr. Hoffenberg must have been under considerable pressure because by the next morning he relented and he pronounced Mr. Haupt with his beating heart dead. And his heart was removed and given to a retired white dentist. And the dentist lived 19 months and 15 days before dying of heart complications. So this was the first successful heart transplant. But doctors now faced a dilemma. They knew that Hulp's death declaration was on shaky ground, ethically and legally. But the success of the transplant showed that fresh, viable organs were an absolute necessity for a successful transplant. So eight months later, a committee at Harvard Medical School redefined death. And their paper is called A Definition of Irreversible Coma. They said, our primary purpose is to redefine irreversible coma as a new criterion for death. Well, there were no new tests or studies or evidence that comatose people were dead. Uh, the committee only gave us utilitarian justification for changing the definition. They said that they wanted to relieve the burden on patients and families and hospitals who needed those hospital beds that are occupied by these comatose patients. And they also said obsolete criteria can lead to controversy in obtaining organs for transplantation. So by the stroke of a pen, they took comatose people and defined them as dead. Well, Now, is that brain dead or just dead? Well, they had to sit down and study it. So obviously there's a difference between someone who is in a coma and someone who is cold, gray, and stiff. You know, the one is warm and pink. The other one right. is cold and stiff, right? So they had to carve out a new definition of death. And so between 1968 and 1981, it was the Wild West out there in the, in the realm of uh, death determination. There weren't really any standards. There, people just sort of you know, did the best they could. Um, until 1981, there was a president's commission which was going to study the, uh, this ethical dilemma. The commission thankfully, did want to maintain a biological definition. They wanted death to be the loss of the integrative functioning of the organism. But they believed that the brain was the master integrator. And they thought, you know, if your brain isn't working, you might, you're not going to live more than a couple of days anyway. So the President's Commission uh, made policy, which was then made into law, and this was in 1981, the law was called the Uniform Determination of Death Act. And the Uniform Determination of Death Act is enforced in some uh, way, shape, or form in almost every state. 
There's two ways now in America under this law to be declared dead. The first is that you have irreversible cessation of your heart and lung function, or you have you can have the irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brain stem. So those are the two ways that you can be declared dead in, in the United States. But it turned out over time that people figured out people who have been declared brain dead actually don't die within a few hours to a few days. Um, Dr. Uh, Alan Schumann in 1998 found 175 cases of people who had been correctly diagnosed with this new thing called brain dead who lived after this declaration of death. For some reason, people didn't take them and remove their care or harvest their organs. Ultimately, some lived for more than 20 years. These people showed uh, wound healing. They moved. They maintained their body temperature. They fought infections. They went through puberty. They even gestated pregnancies. They have, uh, I read a recent article on brain death and pregnancy, and of the 35 cases studied, 27 babies were born alive. I mean, how many dead people give birth to babies in your experience, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. So in 2008, because of this, there was another president's council, and they they noted that Dr. Schumann's work showing that people lived after this so-called brain death diagnosis only gave us two options. They said, first, we'll have to, number one, we could just abandon this whole idea of brain death, or we'll have to develop a new rationale for explaining why this neurological stuff should equal death. Well, I'll give you one guess. What did they choose, Right. So without really giving a reason, they decided that uh, if you're not able to breathe and you're unconscious, you can be pronounced dead. And so because it's been established that brain-dead people have continued biological function, they've now, by sort of a sleight of hand, they've changed the definition of death to the essence of humanness, right? It's now become a philosophical determination. You know, are, are, you, are you able to carry on the work of a human being, right, which is not the same as biological death. It's a philosophical determination. In fact, the chairman of the 2008 President's Council, Dr. Edmund Pellegrino, disagreed and wrote in his dissent, the only indisputable signs of death that we have known are those we've had since antiquity, you know, loss of sentience, heartbeat, breathing, modeling and coldness of skin, rigidity, putrefaction. So really, the 2008 President's Council failed to accurately reflect the science. So brain-dead people are biologically alive. They are not biologically dead. And in fact, Dr. Ari Jaffe, who's a pediatrician and critical care specialist at the University of Alberta, in 2012 surveyed neurologists and found that nearly half, 48%, said that uh, brain death was not a biological state. It was because of a higher brain concept that these people were irreversibly unconscious or they didn't have uh, the ability to have personhood. And over half admitted that brain death and cardiac death are not the same thing. So how can we have two ways of being dead, one in which you're biologically dead and one in which you're not? Right. And the problem that I, one of the big problems with this is with this shift to these non-biological definitions of death, people are not being given truly informed consent about being an organ donor. Uh, the public 
at large still believes when they sign a donor card that you're going to be all dead when your organs are taken. You know, they're not being told that they will still have a beating heart, wound healing. They're not telling, being told that the definition of death is now philosophical, uh, not biological. And doctors, lawyers, and bioethicists are filling up the medical literature with controversy on this. I have a, a quote from David Rodriguez Arias, who's a researcher in moral philosophy and bioethics at the University of Grenada, and he's talking about how this, um, these people are being indoctrinated. He says, policymaking becomes indoctrination whenever public opinions and preferences are intentionally manipulated in ways that destroy or prevent citizens' independent judgment. The history of death determination in the context of organ donation is an indoctrinating attempt to settle a moral controversy. And moreover, there have been many cases of people who have been correctly diagnosed as brain dead and who have made a full recovery. If you go on our website, respectforhumanlife.com, we actually have a survivor's page with over a dozen people, some of whom have recovered enough to go on to live a normal life. And those are the ones that you're aware of. That's the ones we're aware of. I mean, there are a lot of, and the thing is, there um, there was an article today that I, that I saw on post, a five-year-old boy was found in the bottom of a pool, unconscious. They have determined that he is brain dead, and they are waiting to, his parents agreed to let him be an organ donor, and everybody's, you know, cheering, oh, this is wonderful because he's going to have people. Give that young boy a chance for his brain to heal. And that's the problem, you know. With people with mm-hmm. motorcycle accidents, they decide, mm-hmm. okay, that person's brain dead. And Dr. Paul Byrne has said the brain takes a long time to heal, and you owe it to that person, and if it's a loved one of yours, not to pull the plug on them and put them up for harvesting. And if you are not a, a donor, then they're not as likely to do that to you. They're likely to give you more of an opportunity because they're not so anxious to take your organs. Yeah, and that's why it's important to think about these things ahead of time and and to be aware. I mean, there's a a resuscitation specialist, Dr. Sam Parnia, and he has found that most people who get resuscitated these days are are given... um, intentional hypothermia. They cool the body down so that the body doesn't use as much oxygen during the resuscitation. And he says he has case reports of people who take up to seven days after being rewarmed for the brain to kind of reset itself and wake up again. Almost never do people get more than seven days. I mean, Anne Hash had, had two or three days before they went and harvested her organs. Right. Um, we have a, a young boy, such as you mentioned, on, on our website, and his parents were told, no, he's brain dead, there's no hope. Um, they made him an organ donor. They kept him on life support while they were waiting for the recipients to be assembled, and he woke up, and now he's living at home again. I mean, there is such a rush to do this. Uh, one of, of course the other there is survivors we have is is, uh, Zach Dunlap. And on on our website, you can see Dr. Paul Byrne interview Zach Dunlap. It's a wonderful interview. He he had a very significant head injury in 2007 after a four-wheeler accident. Um, He had brain tissue coming out of his ear. He was so badly injured. And he was 
declared brain dead according to the correct criteria. His his doctor came on NBC News and said that, that no mistakes were made. He was correctly diagnosed according to all the standards to be brain dead. But his cousin was a nurse, and his cousin was skeptical. And, and while the transplant uh, team was assembling to go and harvest Zach's organs, his cousin came to the bedside and proved that Zach reacted to pain. Everything was called off. Zach was allowed to recover. Uh, in the interview, when he talks to Dr. Byrne, you know, some, Dr. Byrne asks him, well, what did you think about all this, Zach? And, and Zach remembers he says, the next thing I remembered was laying in the hospital bed, not being able to move or breathe. I couldn't do anything on a ventilator. I heard someone say, I'm sorry, he's brain dead. He's passing away, and there's nothing I could do, just get mad. I couldn't do anything to sign at all. I tried to scream, tried to move. I just got extremely angry. Can you imagine how horrible that would be? And no, I, you I introduced can't. me. I, through your program, you introduced me to a, a lady that you had interviewed, um, Jennifer Hammond. She was declared brain dead in 1985 and, and had a, a very similar memory. Uh, she remembers hearing a doctor say, this is a sad case. I, I wrote this down after listening to your, your interview, Marsha. The doctor was in her room and you know, at that point apparently describing her situation to the, the medical students. This one is a sad case, a young woman with uh, two young children at home. She is not going to come out of this. She'll never be anything more than a vegetable. And other than her brain being dead, she's an excellent specimen. Her husband, however, is being completely unreasonable. So many people could benefit from her organs if only he would agree. And as you know, uh, this lady made a complete recovery. And in fact, because of... Uh, what she had gone through, she went and became a nurse so as to be able to be the good nurse who would help people instead of the the kind of care that she received. So she also took uh, her lemons and made lemonade, I guess you could say. So there, many people have recovered after brain death. Now, how could this be? Uh, there's a doctor in Colombia named Cicero Coimba, and he's actually um, done some very good research on this. If you think about it, as your blood flow in your brain decreases from normal to uh, a diminished amount to the absolute zero, you have to sort of pass through a middle phase where your EEG becomes um, silent, your your electroencephalogram. You aren't going to see brain waves just because the blood flow has decreased. But it hasn't gotten to the point where your tissues are starting to putrefy when the blood flow is just diminished and your brain is just shut down, you can't tell that this person is possibly able to recover. It's just that the electricity is turned off in your house. It doesn't mean that you can't turn it back on. It's not that the wiring is destroyed. And so as right. everybody goes through this system, this the situation of diminishing brain blood flow, they will all go through this situation where the, the electrics are out but with health, a lot of them could be turned back on. It hasn't progressed to the point where their brain is destroyed. And uh, Jahai McMath was a good example of that. She was a little 13-year-old girl who had a cardiac arrest after a tonsillectomy in, in uh, California. And she had 
EEGs with no electrics on it, and uh, she was diagnosed brain dead. But she was moved to uh, New Jersey, where they have a religious exemption to the brain death law. And she continued to live for uh, almost five years. Uh, She went through puberty. She began to menstruate. I mean, how many corpses do you know go through puberty and get their period? Mm -hmm. Uh, She she began to respond to commands. I mean, her MRI did not show that her brain was completely broken down. And and later, two neurologists testified she was not brain dead, but she was in a minimally conscious state. So this is concerning. And it's even... Go ahead. Well, I was going to ask you if you... If you will talk about the apnea test, not sleep apnea, but the apnea test and how dangerous that is for people to sure. allow that. Yep, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about that. That is part of um, okay. The what I'm just I'm, let me just move along and I'm gonna describe the apnea test as I talk about how the brain death law is about to possibly be changed. Um, okay. There's there's been a move among doctors to change the language of the Uniform Determination of Death Act to make it easier to declare people brain dead because a lot of these children whose parents contested uh, that they were actually dead have been uh, filing lawsuits. And the, the neurologists don't want to be sued anymore. So they want to make it easier to declare brain death and they want to make it harder to file a lawsuit. So they're going to be changed. They propose to the Uniform Law Commission that the way death is determined be changed. Uh, the first change is they're going to change what we talked about earlier. Right now, the UDDA says that you have to have irreversible loss of function of the entire brain. They want to change that to the word permanent. Now, you wouldn't think there'd be a big difference between irreversible and permanent, but permanent is being defined to mean that doctors are not going to attempt to reverse the situation. So it possibly could be reversed, but doctors, for whatever reason, are not going to try to reverse it. So these people have a prognosis of death, and they're going to be declared dead before they actually die just because doctors aren't going to take the trouble to save them. Uh, Dr. Jossie, who we referred to earlier, says this is just like looking out into the water and seeing a drowning man and say, you know, he's already dead just because no one's going to swim out to save him. So they're going to be declaring people dead who are not dead yet just because doctors aren't going to take steps. Um, The second change is they're going to take and narrow the definition of brain death from what is currently the entire brain to just selected functions of the brain stem that you could easily test at bedside. And the reason they're doing this is about half of people pronounced brain dead still have a functioning part of the brain called the hypothalamus. Um, This hypothalamus is a very important thing for maintaining your your blood pressure and your body fluids. It's a a very important part of your brain. And it usually is still working in about half of people who are diagnosed as as brain dead, even though the standard says the entire brain should not be working. This part is sort of being ignored. And that's what lawyers have picked up on. And and they're suing on behalf of clients who still had a functioning part of their brain. So to avoid the lawsuits, uh, they want to just, Forget about that as if it weren't part of the brain. Make it unimportant. And the last uh, big change I'm going to tell you about is they want to eliminate the need for consent prior to a brain death test and also allow it to be performed over the objections of your surrogate. And this is where the APIA test comes. So the revised standards 
for the UDDA only are going to look for coma and loss of breathing. And the apnea test is a test to find out whether or not you're able to breathe independently. Uh, what is done is that the, the ventilator is disconnected for up to 10 minutes to see if your rising levels of carbon dioxide in your blood will trigger you uh, to begin breathing. Now, this test does absolutely nothing for the individual patient. This is only a test uh, that will be done to benefit unspecified other people who might want your ICU bed or might want your organs. It does not help you, and in fact, it can only cause harm. Taking you off your ventilator causes uh, more brain damage and brain swelling and can actually uh, make your situation worse. So the fact that they want to remove the need to have any type of consent prior to doing this dangerous test that can make the patient worse or to do it over the objections of your surrogate is it's unconscionable. I mean, it's a move backwards uh, in time to 20th century medical paternalism. This is not the way we should be moving. No, absolutely. Um, And so the Catholic Medical Association and the Christian Medical and Dental Association have written letters to the Uniform Law Commission protesting these changes along with many others. Dr. Schumann and 107 experts in medicine, bioethics, philosophy, and law have submitted a paper which states that people have a right not to have a concept of death that experts vigorously debate imposed upon them against their judgment and conscience. And so this uh, this right now is going to be uh, talked about uh, in July. The Uniform Law Commission is having their annual meeting, and they're going to be discussing uh, where this may or may not go. So that will be in the news coming up. I'm just going to talk briefly about one last type of uh, donation, unless you have other questions about the brain death. Uh, no, I'm just I'm just thinking. What do you do, you know, if you go to the hospital or, you know, if you have an accident, what can we as people do to protect ourselves? Or if they go ahead and approve this, if the UDDA approves that, we're kind of hosed, right? I mean, because we don't have to have any consent, and they can do anything, and they can do the test, and they can declare you brain dead, and you cannot protect your loved one. Is there anything that we can do? to write our congressman or get on the bandwagon to go against yeah. um, yes. UDDA? Yes, there, yes, there is. Okay. Um, Excellent. If you go I, on our uh, – I'm not sure how to direct you. It, this just came out a couple of days ago on the Renew America website. Uh, I also just saw it on the, the Halo Voice uh, emailing today. Dr. Paul Byrne and Dr. Christine Zayner have a, a, a letter that you can sign and they will uh, send to the Uniform Law Commission. It's like a petition. And so okay. I can I can forward that to you, Marcia, and if you want to have that okay. available for your listeners on your website, that would be a very direct thing that you could do. The good news Excellent. is the Uniform Law Commission is considering putting opt-out language on this because of some very uh, hard work that has been done by some pro-life, pro-life lawyers with the Uniform Law Commission uh, so that if you state your preference ahead of time, there's the potential that they will allow you to opt out of death by neurologic criterion and only have your death declared uh, by the cardiorespiratory criterion. 
So that's a that's another hopeful thing. If they keep that language or not, I don't know. The other thing you can do is on the the Halo Voice website as well as Life Guardian, they have a uh, life affirming uh, healthcare uh, proxy form that you can fill out right. to to let people know that that's how you want to be treated at the end of life. So all those things are are action steps that that I would recommend. Okay. As well all as right. not, of course, being a registered organ donor. So I'll, I'll, last, I'll get that and post it. Yep, thank you. Uh, the last type okay. of donation uh, that is a bit newer is called donation after circulatory death. So, you know, these are people who are not brain dead, but they're very sick and they're not expected to survive. So doctors will approach uh, the families of these patients as well and say, you know, could we, well, you know, and you're thinking of withdrawing care, this is sort of a terminal situation, could we withdraw care in a way that will allow these people's organs to be harvested? And so what they do is, if you consent to this, they take you to the operating room or a room close by, and the transplant team is all scrubbed up and ready to go, and, and they take off the ventilator and they stop any medications and they wait for your heart to stop. And then they wait about two to five minutes. There's no real standard. It's two minutes in Wisconsin, it's five minutes in Canada. Uh, in Denver, they waited a whole 75 seconds before starting to harvest a baby's heart. And if your heart doesn't spontaneously restart, they call you dead and they start harvesting your organs. Now, many medical professionals are not comfortable with this because we know that patients are routinely resuscitated after that amount of time. I mean, the very first time I, I spoke on this topic, a young nurse in the audience commented she had just participated in resuscitating someone after 10 minutes of cardiac arrest. And that patient walked out of the hospital with only mild neurological changes. Uh, Dr. Jaffe has a whole selection of people who were not medically resuscitated, but their own hearts restarted up to 10 minutes. And some of those also recovered. Uh, this donation after circulatory death is uh, felt to be unethical and banned in a lot of European countries, such as Finland, Germany, Hungary, Lithuania, Turkey. Uh, there have been case reports where people have had to be pronounced dead twice. We have uh, one on our website where a young woman was uh, taken to the operating room. Uh, her heart was allowed to stop. They listened over the, you know, under the sterile drapes, and after two minutes, it hadn't restarted. They began to procure her organs, and when they were cutting down toward her kidneys, they noticed that there were pulses in her aorta and renal arteries, and she started gasping for breath. Huh. So she had apparently just auto-resuscitated herself while her kidneys were being harvested. I mean, just out of mercy, they gave her additional fentanyl and lorazepam, and she had to be pronounced dead a second time about 15 minutes later. The coroner called the cause of her death a homicide. They had flat out just killed that woman. And if you didn't think, if you didn't think it could get any more gruesome, they have a, another procedure called a normal thermic regional perfusion with controlled donation after circulatory death if they want to harvest your heart. Uh, what they do is they um, take you to the operating room. They, uh, they wait for your heart to stop. Then what they do is they uh, ligate, that means clamp off all the blood vessels that supply the blood to your brain to make sure your brain dead on purpose. And then they hook you up to uh, a cardiopulmonary bypass machine, which resuscitates all the rest of your body and the rest of your organs to be sure the organs will stay healthy. Uh, but they have to clamp off the blood flow to your brain 
Otherwise, you might wake up, right? And once the blood flow to the heart is established, the heart starts beating again. Now, this is playing fast and loose with the Uniform Determination of Death Act. I mean, remember, the current law is that you have the irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory function, right? How irreversible is this if your own heart is restarted in your own chest? Exactly. Uh, this, this is controversial. The American College of Physicians in 2021 uh, said that this practice should be paused because the burden of proof regarding its ethical and legal propriety was not met. It's banned in Australia. There's many doctors who have taken a stand saying that this this is just this needs to stop. It needs to be paused. But despite all these cause, calls for pauses, it does continue. So basically, what I'm what I'm going to give you is the bottom line. You know, for these people who have uh, been declared brain dead or declared uh, dead by uh, circulatory criteria. Um, this is, in fact, a concealed practice of physician-assisted death, and it violates both criminal law and our central tenet of medicine not to harm our patients, and, and these things are unethical. Again, just to review, tissue uh, harvesting from a biologically dead body, living donation where both people stay alive, these things can be ethically performed. Um, harvesting organs, obviously, from uh, Political prisoners uh, in communist China is, is unethical and, and organ trafficking, taking a poor person and, and, and paying them for an organ is unethical and should be condemned. I mean, brain dead and circulatory harvesting are both unethical. I mean, these people are in no way biologically dead. And, and medical science has been catching up. I mean, a lot of these people now, um, we have names to, to help them actually improve instead of labeling them as brain dead and, and which becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy since at that point they become organ donors or have their support withdrawn. I mean, this is curtailed research into how to better help brain-injured people. Um, we're basing brain death on a philosophy, not on actual biology. We're, we're deciding that, you know, these people are, are dead enough, right? They're not human enough, but they're not biologically dead. I mean, we're using them not as people, but we're just reducing them to means. Uh, even transplant proponents agree with this. They're a means to an end. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the fact that people have survived a diagnosis of death are evidence that these redefinitions of death are faulty. And what really, again, bothers me is that the public is being denied truly informed consent when they sign a donor card. I mean, we made up a, a little informed consent. If, you know, if we were going to truly tell people, you know, if you went down to the DMV and they said, okay, uh, even though you're declared legally dead, your heart is still beating, your lungs are going to aerate with the help of a ventilator, your body systems are going to continue to function. During surgery to get your organs, you're not actually guaranteed anesthesia. And did you know that people have recovered from uh, this diagnosis with ongoing medical treatment? You know, how many people would sign their donor cards? The other right. thing people and don't know. Mm-hmm. I want you to go back to that and talk about yeah. the anesthesia. There is no guarantee that the person is given anesthesia, but there is a guarantee that you will be given a blocking agent so you can't move. Absolutely. So I, was, I am so grateful. I am so grateful that when I was being instructed, I was instructed to give an actual anesthetic. You know, there, there is no guarantee for this. And, and 
if you look at the anesthesia literature, the, the articles that I review, they talk about how to manage the fluids, how to use the neuromuscular blocking drug to prevent movement. They don't talk about even, they don't even mention an anesthetic. One of the most shocking things I read was from a, a book um, by a couple of uh, experts on organ donation about the European literature. They found that in Europe, the anesthesia debate came down to two positions. One position was, you know, these people, it's potential that they could be feeling pain. I mean, after all, when they make the incision, the heart rate goes up, the blood pressure goes up. So we should give an anesthetic just in case. The other side, interestingly, they, they didn't make their case based on the fact that whether or not these people required or didn't require anesthesia. They made their case not to give an anesthetic because they said if the public learns that these people are receiving an anesthetic, they might believe these people aren't actually dead, which is pretty cold, isn't it? Right, because they so, yeah. might feel pain. Yeah. Well, didn't Dr. Byrne, Mm -hmm. um, when he was on my program and he was involved in doing a procedure like that, that he said that the young man had a tear roll down his cheek. And he said with that, that is what struck him, that he -hmm. could not do that. And, you know, that was his realization of he, he may have feeling, he may have felt, you know, the scalpel going in and, you know, that was his revelation and why he started going, talking against brain death and giving the body a chance to heal. Right. And, you know, the author I mentioned earlier, Dick Teresi, he he uh, contacted his local organ procurement organization and said, you know, if you will guarantee me an anesthetic, I will consent to be an organ donor. I just want it in writing. He said, in fact, I'll even put a codicil in my will that I will pay for the anesthesia if you will guarantee me that. The organ procurement team uh, where he lived would not give him any such guarantee. I mean, honestly, you're you're at the mercy of whoever's on call for anesthesia that night when you come in. There is no guarantee of that. Mm-mm. And so I think it goes back to what you said earlier is being an organ, organ, being an organ donor. You are at such a risk, and it is safest as much as it sounds like it would be a great, wonderful gift to give somebody. Do you want to give somebody that gift while you're still alive and have somebody literally kill you, end your life to take your organs? And that is what is happening because you do not have those organs from a cadaver. You have to be alive to give your heart you know, a, a lot of the organs that you were talking about earlier, you have to be alive to give those. It's not a living donor where you will live after that. Right. And, again, that's what people don't understand. I mean, if you are biologically dead, the the organs break down so quickly that they very quickly become unsuitable for transplant. I mean, on our website, I demonstrate to this for people who, you know, I mean, this is if this is all new to you, it's a lot to take in and it's hard to wrap your mind around. But I can show you mathematically and that organs have to come from a living donor because if you take the number of people who are registered organ donors and you multiply it by the death rate, you know, in 2021, I can tell you right out, one and a half million registered organ donors died. And there were only 100,000 people waiting for organs. So if you take one and a half million registered organ donors, 100,000 people waiting, everyone should have 15 organs available if dead people could donate an organ. 
So obviously, you know, there's a waiting list. We aren't giving 15 organs for everyone waiting. And if you think about it, every donor can give up to eight organs. So if dead people could donate organs, multiply 15 times eight, there'd be 120 organs for everybody. So obviously dead people cannot donate organs. If they did, we'd have a tremendous surplus, not a waiting list. Right. The other Absolutely. Thing that's sort of and the people don't that know people, that. People aren't being told. Um, the Milliman report in 2020 has shown that this current unethical system, people think that transplant science is, science is just getting better, but the data shows otherwise. You know, between 2017 and 2020, the one-year survival rate for transplant recipients across the board decreased by 13.6%. And the five-year survival rate decreased by 36%. I mean, the survival rates are just getting worse. And honestly, you can, with living donation, you can do any transplant except a heart. And so we could be giving people good living transplants of almost everything. But people ask me, you know, Dr. Klesser, what about people who need a heart transplant? And, And I admit it, it's a tragedy to think of people, you know, that, have heart trouble that can't get a a heart transplant ethically but it's also a tragedy that living people are being killed by organ harvesting under the the current system i mean i really think if we haven't been pouring all our research and, and monetary efforts into this current unethical system we would have a good artificial heart by now and and i i really think that pouring more time and effort into this current system which the outcomes are only getting worse is is just going to end up causing more problems. And I think is that, that because of rejection? Is you know, that I because think the body is rejecting it? All all transplants are are trying to be rejected, right? They have to put people on very strong drugs to okay. um, prevent that type of uh, rejection. Plus, I think, you know, people are just scraping the bottom of the barrel. I mean, Dr. Burns says that he heard about a 91-year-old who became an organ donor. And if you're taking an organ that's already 91 years old, how much more life does it have in it, right? Right, right. I'm sorry. I'm talking so much, I'm not leaving time for your uh, questions. Oh, (laughs) Um, if anybody has any question um, or comments, go ahead and click one now because um, we we have four minutes left. And but I mean the information that you are providing is it's so important that people know. It's you have to know the facts. Knowledge is powerful, and if you don't know the facts, you're making a decision based on what you're being told. And just like we have found with hospice, what we're told is not the fact. And we've had so many people that were murdered by hospice because we believed what they told us. And we don't want to ever be in that situation again. And this is another one of those situations. Um, You had mentioned Halo Voice for the um, I Don't Want to Be a Donor. And that is all one word, halovoice.org. And they do have, I do not wish to be a donor. You can get that um, and put it in your, put it with your driver's license. And you go to the website and click on donor. I think it's on organ donor. Protect yourself. If you don't protect yourself, there is nobody that is going to do that for you at all. And we have, we have a link to the Halo Voice uh, 
I refuse to be a donor card if you go to uh, respectforhumanlife.com. Be sure you put the human in there, otherwise you won't find us, but it's respectforhumanlife.com. And that has some other information. It has survivors listed in there that you can see and read the story about that. So it has a lot of information. Um, Dr. Paul Byrne had been on, and he is another excellent resource. There is a book out about the dangers of hospice written by Michelle Young-Dewers, who is a former respiratory therapist, and that is called Killing for Profit, the Dark Side of Hospice. There are a lot of resources out there. You just have to know where to look. And organ harvesting is wrong. Unless it is like she, like um, Dr. Kesslick said earlier, if it's a living one and that person's going to live, or it is actually from a cadaver, which would be the tissues, or giving bone marrow to somebody is a living that both people will live. But otherwise, Absolutely. taking someone's organ, it's killing that person, and that's not yeah. right. We we don't. That's not humanity. No. So I'm going well, to give again, you the last minute. Yeah. So I just I just want to end on a, on a positive note. You know, this this is hard information to think about if it's not something you've considered before. It, you know, the Bible says when when one man speaks, he sounds right until his uh, friend gets up and and questions him. And so you know, you've, we've only heard one side of the story most of our lives. Give the gift of life, right? And so, as I just present these ideas, if if, if it seems very foreign to you, if it, it if it seems you know to rock your world, I'm right there with you. I I felt those same feelings. So so just take the time to to take a look at the website. Uh, our book is. Uh, Harvesting Organs and Cherishing Life. Uh, it's written from a, a Christian perspective. So this is something that, uh, you know, affects everybody. You don't have to be a Christian to, to understand that taking organs from someone who's biologically still alive is wrong. So just take some time and, and investigate it um, and decide for yourself, you know, where, what type of transplant uh, would you feel ethically right in receiving. Right, absolutely. So thank you so much um, for coming on tonight and giving us a ton of information. And you can go out to her website and get more information on that, and we will be back in a few weeks. Thank you for everybody for coming on and listening to us. We definitely appreciate that. So good night, Heidi, and good night to our listeners. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Heidi. I appreciate it. Good night. Mm -hmm. All right. Good night.